I'm Afshin Ratatsi, and welcome back to Going Underground, broadcasting all around the world from the UAE. What do you think of when you hear the word liberalism? Do you think democracy, freedom and equality? Or do you think neoconservatism and aggressive military interventions? Yale history and law professor Samuel Moyne's new book centers on how liberalism went from a defender of universal values and rationalism to hawkish Cold War mass murder after the Soviet defeat of Nazism and fascism in World War II. Author of new book, Liberalism Against Itself, Cold War Intellectuals and the Making of Our Times, Professor Samuel Moyne joins me again from Yale University in New Haven. Thank you so much, Professor, for uh, coming back on. I've got to do some name-dropping at the top because, you know, Karl Popper taught my dad, Isaiah Berlin, nominated for his chair at Oxford. Uh, but that out the way, tell me how violence in this world today, and who knows, Trump, the war in Ukraine, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, how, how violence in the world and reaction to it is led by ideas in your latest book? Well, what I'm interested in, in in this new book is how liberalism was transformed in and through the middle of the 20th century and uh, led to a, a kind of liberalism that takes the form of threat patrol. Uh, and sometimes that's legitimate to assess threats, to counteract threats, but sometimes liberals take threats far too seriously and overreact to them. I think they did in the Cold War. They did in the War on Terror. I think they're doing so now. Yeah, and I'll get on to the subject of timing, which seems to appear in the book quite a lot. Just when uh, some sort of more egalitarian uh, liberalism could have been born, the uh, defenses for it were at their weakest. Um, preparations in, uh, in NATO nations for uh, damning utopian ideas of, of revolution, they, they go back a long way, um, not just to the Holocaust, not just to the French Revolution in, in this book. China's foreign minister famously saying apocryphally that it's too early to tell uh, what impact the French Revolution uh, has on uh, the world today. Just tell me how far back this book goes in explaining the roots of arguably Donald Trump and the world we live in today? Well, many aspects of American history are rooted in its violent founding, uh, the dispossession of native peoples to clear land and the history of enslavement of black people. Uh, and, you know, many of his policies, you know, would have been familiar, I think, to someone like Andrew Jackson, the early uh, American president. But uh, what I, th I think we have to ask is why Donald Trump was elected. Uh, and there, I think we have to tell a story about history since World War II and the way in which both parties abandoned a lot of people. Uh, first, I think, in a kind of Cold War posture that evolved into a neoliberal set of policies that brought devastation. And Donald Trump kind of saw an opportunity and reaped the benefits. Uh, uh, you know, the American militarism did not take Donald Trump to discover. And the Cold War made it a big fixture of international affairs. And yet Americans didn't take the opportunity to end that confrontational posture when the Cold War itself ended in 1989. And uh, in that sense, I think we are seeing more of the same today with Donald Trump 
a kind of version of it or you know a you know some someone who we shouldn't fixate on to understand the continuities in u.s history yeah trump supporters watching this will say actually trump may in fact be a counter against the liberalism that you describe in this book because it's not uh, it's not uh, trump who wants uh, more wars arguably when he was in uh, the white house it's of course the liberals, the Cold War liberals. Where did, just a quick sidebar, where, where did all the utopian ideas, I mean, where did, the, where did the very different ideas of liberalism and violence that were Bolivar, Che Guevara, Mao, uh, leading to Sartre, where did all those ideas go and turn into violence like Joe Biden's violence and uh, Obama's violence? How did how did the two get exchanged? Well, you know those those more radical ideas never had all that much purchase in you know American circles and debates with maybe the kind of well the Black Panthers clearly but of the nineteen sixties yeah though I was going to mention I mean it's only fair to say that liberals. Uh, in in a general sense, because really there weren't any self-described liberals in in my country until after World War One, but in European history in the 19th century as well as Latin American history, liberals could back revolution maybe too slowly, and then they abandon it too quickly. For example, in the revolutions of 1848. But um, liberals could even become socialists like John Stuart Mill in uh, Britain's 19th century. But I think something big happens in the 1940s because the Soviet Union emerges from World War II as the victor over Nazism and is enormously prestigious. Uh, and it has a lot more power than it had had at the end of World War I uh, when it was, you know, treated to a kind of confinement regime by the Western powers. Um, and in response, liberals, I think, get afraid. And they are in particular afraid that the Soviet Union might be promising a credible future for humanity. And instead of saying liberalism has the goods for humanity, Western liberals say, that they shouldn't promise big things. That's what the Soviets are doing and duping everyone else. And so, in a sense, the Soviets lead liberals to retreat in a certain sense and say what we need to focus on is freedom in a dangerous world where tyranny lurks. And that, I think, does massively redefine liberalism you know, relative to its past. And you dismiss the idea promulgated by, say, Professor Perry Anderson in, in UCLA, that this was the Jewish diaspora escaping the Holocaust in Nazi Germany that came to warn the utopian socialists and uh, uh, communist movements in Western Europe that you mustn't wish for great uh, societies because you end up in Nazi Germany. That isn't the reason. I don't think so. I mean, the Cold War liberals were predominantly Jewish. There were some others, like Christian ones, like Reinhold Niebuhr in my country. But the fact is, there were a lot of socialist Jews. Uh, and indeed, Jews were central to the Soviet project uh, for much of the 20th century. And so a Jewish background doesn't predetermine the choices of these Cold War liberals. Um, and 
lots of ordinary Jews really did embrace the New Deal and wanted to see it continue and expand. Jews were central to the New Left as well in the 1960s. So we need a different explanation. Uh, and I focus in so far as these characters I'm talking about were Jewish um, on their Zionism, because it's very interesting that even as liberal revolution and sometimes socialist revolution is lighting the post-colonial world on fire, uh, these Cold War liberals um, don't, don't see a lot of promise in that kind of emancipation, and yet they do back the Zionist cause. And that means that they uh, believe in revolution, state founding, um, and violence when push comes to shove in the name of emancipation. And so the question then is, you know, how they could kind of preserve those um, commitments for a Jewish politics and not uh, think that everyone around the world should be entitled to the same kind of activism. Of course, speaking from the Middle East, uh, people who support Palestine would remember Hannah Arendt's uh, phrase, the banality of evil as it's on our television screens every half hour. You in the book talk about her opposition to Zionism and how she explained that. I do. I mean, it, it's very interesting that... Um, while she's better known now as a, a critic of Zionism, uh, which she became, she had been a fervent Zionist in the early years of her political activism in the 1930s up through the middle of the 1940s. And she actually attended the Biltmore Conference during World War II, where Zionist plans were laid. Uh, and, you know, she also supported armed self-defense by Jews uh, against, uh, you know, the British Empire. Uh, and yet, um, you know, she gives it up. And the Cold War liberals never did. They remained, you know, strong commit, strongly committed to Zionism, really, their entire lives. Isaiah Berlin as, as an excellent example. And of course, there are Israeli Cold War liberals, the most famous of whom I talk about in the book is named Jacob Talmon. And the question is, how could they embrace the older form of liberalism, which was collectivist and nationalist and sometimes revolutionary and violent uh, for the case of Jewish, uh, you know, uh, kind of politics, but not think that liberalism needed to survive in that form for everyone around the world oppressed uh, by oppressors and, you know, looking for some kind of response. And today they're all writing in the New York Times op-eds and uh, Washington Post op-ed op uh, columns. Y you mentioned Berlin there, these key figures who were teaching, many of them in, in Britain, uh, you don't think they really had any sense of the global south? I mean, today we speak of the BRICS countries, of uh, the rising of uh, a new world. They really didn't... Uh, think uh, much, I mean, I don't know whether you veer towards nearly saying they were kind of racists. Um, they didn't really understand the developing world. I, I don't think so. I mean, if you think about it, the, the, the lifetimes of these Cold War liberals coincides with the biggest emancipatory event in human history, which is the decolonization of the world after centuries of empires. And yet, 
they generally say nothing about it. And if you look through Berlin's correspondence and writings for any mention of, you know, the hotspots for British decolonization, Aden, Kenya, uh, you know, he never talks about them. Uh, and so that might mean he just missed the boat. But I, I think that um, what's useful about Hannah Arendt's career, although she wasn't the same kind of Cold War liberal, and in fact, Berlin hated her, um, she, when she did write about decolonization, and she said it was going to be uh, like uh, another stage of the French Revolution, which because it cared about poverty, um, led people to embrace tyranny. And she also kind of doubted that non-white peoples could have freedom. And so I wonder if that isn't this, the same isn't true of these Cold War liberals who just didn't talk about it, but still thought of the Atlantic, the Atlantic countries, the Anglophone countries, especially as the places where freedom could seek refuge in a world of Cold War tyranny. Professor Samuel Moyne, I'll stop you there. More from Yale University's Chancellor Kent, Professor of Law and History, after this break. Welcome back to Going Underground. I'm still here with Professor Samuel Moyne, Yale University's Chancellor Kent Professor of Law and History and author of the book, Liberalism Against Itself, Cold War Intellectuals and the Making of Our Times. Sam, yeah, there was a bit of uh, flashing light as you were speaking there. I don't know whether that was uh, utopian in, in some way. Uh, it, uh, it is interesting, though, that the Enlightenment as we were talking about. Uh, and again, I've got to remind our audience that what we see on our news screens today is often being interpreted by people who are schooled in this tradition that may seem abstract in some kind of way, but is clearly there. Would you say that, um, would you say it's not the fault, arguably, of these uh, people from the academy? The military industrial complex chose them because it suited their, their uh, interests in making money out of weapons and whatever. Uh, it wasn't so much that Isaiah Berlin and Karl Popper uh, said, uh, look, we want to start um, uh, COINTEL Pro and uh, whatever it is uh, around the developing world, stopping revolutions here and there. Of course, uh, you know, uh, no one should attribute too much importance to intellectuals and publicists, but they have a certain importance because they do tell lots of people what to believe. Um, and if we're ever to see pushback against, you know, the uh, powers of the world, the only, you know, hope is going to come from people who are convinced that there should be an alternative. And so my, my primary, you know, trouble with these Cold War liberals is that uh, they, they, in a sense, rationalize what the Cold War West is doing um, without even defending that the Cold War West is also building welfare states at the very time they're writing about freedom from the state. Um, Cold War Western states uh, are raising taxation to unprecedented levels precisely on rich people uh, at the very time that Berlin says freedom consists in freedom from interference by the state. 
and so the damage I think was done in the way people think about you know, right and wrong and what they should hope for from politics. And that doesn't mean that uh, that they they change the world on their own, but it does mean they they left us kind of speechless when neoliberalism came and kind of stripped the state back further and spread very coercive economic policies around the world through the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, because all that mattered was freedom from the state for individual initiative. So that's my case. And I do agree with you that one needs a bigger picture to understand, you know, the workings of power and wealth in our world. I know we have to be brief here, but how did they then perform the trick of destroying the Enlightenment as a, as a great uh, thing. How, how did they do, I mean, some might say if they're that good, then uh, it's gonna be pretty difficult to achieve what you're, you're recommending there. I mean, clearly in the developing world, the Enlightenment is still seen as a great thing, even by religious figures, uh, as regards to secular Enlightenment. In Latin America, Asia, Africa, the Enlightenment is a big deal in right. Beijing to uh, Caracas. How did, they, how did they do that trick? given that they have poetry, art, literature, all of this on their side. Absolutely. And in fairness, I mean, the Enlightenment has had some, you know, revivalists in the West, and sometimes uh, wars by the United States can now be defended as, you know, spreading the Enlightenment to the dark realms where, you know, religion, uh, you know, is pervasive. But in the 1940s, it was crucial that the Soviet Union was saying that it stood for the Enlightenment reason, science, progress, and the Cold War liberals kind of gave up any investment in those things or worried that saying you were for the enlightenment and reason would lead you to side with the Soviets. And so uh, my my basic argument is that Cold War liberals prevented a, presented a more tragic view, sometimes an openly religious one, or they appealed to kind of secular surrogates for religion's idea of original sin, like Sigmund Freud's idea that human beings are born aggressive. Um, and the reason why Cold War liberals thought of human beings as sinful or violent is because they wanted people to conclude that we couldn't hope for very much. We were fundamentally not people who could be reformed by our societies and our states, which you know, really had to keep us at bay. And so the 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 abandonment of the Enlightenment that I talk about in the book is was a way for Cold War liberals to, in a sense, depress us and to keep us from asking more of our lives and our governments. Yeah, but what if you were in an argument, say, with Robert McNamara who was sitting here and uh, they said, look, at this time that we're talking about this switch, one out of three governments in the world said they were communist. I mean, that's barely right. uh, 50 years after Karl Marx's death. We had no choice but to uh, twist the idea of liberalism to make it this way. Otherwise, Marxism would have conquered right. the earth. I don't know. I mean, how do you compete with the utopian except by offering another utopia? And honestly, instead of offering something credible to the world, liberals declared war on the world. So actually, they, in practice, were quite utopian in a way, um, It just in the wrong way, in a violent way. And 
some would argue they still are. I mean, regime change in Iraq or Libya, how can that not reflect a kind of optimism? It's just in the wrong tool, violence, uh, military intervention. Um, and maybe the correct response to the Soviet Union would have been to say, liberalism can provide the very goods that the Soviets are promising, not just in the Atlantic, but across the world. And it stands for reason and progress. But uh, the liberals gave up on those, maybe because they were anxious that they weren't sure that the Soviet Union hadn't stolen a march on them. Uh, and so they, in a sense, define liberalism as providing lesser things. At least it would keep you free from tyranny, even if your free society was radically unequal uh, and you know didn't provide the same kinds of opportunities you might feel you deserved. When it comes to the opposition to these values, clearly this Cold War liberalism affected the left and we had all sorts of permutations of postmodernism, arguable dead ends of neo-Marxism. Do you th see that religion, um, I mean, I know we started off talking about Trump and I think you mistook what I meant. I meant Trump as a reaction, arguably, to this, not the right. result of it. That actually what gives strength to any kind of opposition, the only weapons at the disposal of those trying to oppose it our religion, and we see the rise of religion, of course, in the Middle East, of course, uh, amongst uh, Catholicism in liberation theology still going in Latin America, of course, the Christian right in the United States, the uh, religious uh, resurgence in Russia. The, the biggest uh, way to oppose this brutal Cold War liberalism that has been responsible for yes. killing, wounding, and maiming tens of millions of people is, is a faith in God. I think that's very insightful. Um, you know, you're getting at something that I, I, I don't think we've really understood uh, about the last hundred years, which is that having opposed a kind of secular alternative to the broken promises of liberals, um, you know, li liberals then kind of were shocked to find people turning to religion instead, you know, as 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 what was left and obviously from the Iranian revolution on, a, a new kind of religion, which many people had thought obsolete, has returned. But if you like, it it, it was the liberals' own fault that they didn't provide a, a kind of credible secularism. Uh, instead, they you know spread imperial rule uh, and continue to do so. And I, I agree with you that it's a sad result of that set of choices that people turn the old, to whatever's left, religion or whatever, as uh, what what might get them out of this imperial world. Apart from uh, rubbish novels and rubbish poetry, do you think the only thing we have then uh, uh, from this period, if indeed it's ending, I don't know, is, and it seems odd because uh, Cold War liberalism has destroyed so many buildings, is architecture. Do you think that's about all that'll be left? I like postmodernist architecture. I mean, I, 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 I'm I'm with you. Um, you know, I, I would say it's early days to write the obituary of Cold War liberalism. Uh, as as you know, the Ukraine war has given 
Cold War liberals a new faith in their program. The, the shipwreck of Iraq in general and the war on terror led a lot of Americans to reject American warmongering, and Trump's election was part of that. Um, but the Ukraine war makes it look again the way the Cold War liberals wanted it to look, the West against the East, uh, freedom against tyranny, uh, uh, liberation against empire. And so you were in a, an era of the kind of second coming or the, you know, 18th coming of Cold War liberalism and uh, when it will die as anyone's guess. And just finally then, do, do you think the rising powers in the multipolar world will be kinder to NATO nations with this Cold War liberalism as, as they stop being as powerful than they were to them? It's a fascinating question. I mean, uh, American decline is going to take a while. And it's been fascinating in the era of the Ukraine war how little the global South has been willing to sign up to the reactivation of Cold War postures coming out of the North Atlantic. Um, and you've seen that repeatedly, notably in the kind of you know conformity to the sanctions regime that the West attempted after the invasion. Um, but it's it's many decades, if not centuries, before uh, there's there's really we reach that question of how, with the tables turned, the newly powerful uh, in the global south treat the newly weak in the global north. I think we're seeing the barest you know inkling of what that will be like, but we're just not near it enough yet to make any guesses. Although some of these cultural uh, leaders. Uh, managed to switch pretty quickly after the failures of uh, the United States in, well, let alone in Vietnam, but in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, uh, Libya. So they can presumably switch quite quickly and say, what a loss the war in Ukraine was. We poured in billions of dollars of US public money, but hey, uh, on to something else. I, I think that's right. Um... But, you know, you might I might push back and say, even so, uh, despite all the errors Cold War liberals ha have made and the pushback they've gotten, they find pretty easy opportunities to reclaim their authority, at least in global northern politics. Uh, and so the you know, the, the global south has complained about. Uh, you know, empire and the post-imperial world for decades, most notably in the 1970s after the oil shock, when it seemed like the global South was going to ascend to much greater power than it had ever had. Um, and and yet we, we, we do have the basic hierarchy and power and wealth between the North and South that seems enduring for the time being. Uh, and it's it 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 w that will change, I think, slowly, not quickly. Professor Samuel Moyne, thank you. And that's it for the show. Remember, we're bringing you brand new episodes every Saturday and Monday. But until then, keep in touch via all our social media if it's not censored in your country. And head to our channel, Going Underground TV on Rumble.com to watch new and old episodes of Going Underground. See you very soon.